Dear Lord, we thank you for gathering us together this morning. Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us through Christ. And we thank you for what you are going to do. Lord, we thank you for Christ who came, born of a virgin, and he came to be born for the purpose of dying, dying in our place, and then rising from the dead. And Lord, we know that your word promises us that he is coming again to receive us to himself and to set up his kingdom upon this earth, Lord. Your word says in Isaiah that he is the one that you have brought forth. He's the child. The government rests upon his shoulders and of the increase of his government, uh, there will be no end, Lord. He will rule and reign forever. And we look forward to that day. We long for that day and we ask you to be about making us ready for that day, Lord. Help us to live in the light of it, that better country that is coming, Lord. And please bless us as we go to your word together. As we come, help us to have humble hearts ready to receive instruction from your word, Lord. Help us to believe what your word says and help us to know that you have given us your word for the purpose of making us wise unto salvation and to sanctify us, to change us, Lord. We ought not to be the same people leaving this building as we were when we came in because we are coming before your word. We are beholding your glory in your word and we know that your word says that it is as we behold your glory that we are transformed from glory to glory. So may you accomplish your work in us, making us more like your son. Even this morning we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're in Hebrews again. Uh, Lord willing, next week we'll probably take a look at a Christmas passage, but this morning we're in Hebrews chapter 11, and we're looking at verses 28 through 31, but I want to begin starting up in verse 23, just so we can get the flow. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So last time we were in the book of Hebrews, I mentioned that as we worked through verses 23 through 31, that we would see the people of God in the Old Testament focusing on God to the point that they would experience two very significant things. And it was the first of those experiences that we looked at last time in verses 23 through 27, there we found that 
Moses and his parents focused on God until they experienced what? Does anybody remember? Starts with an F, rhymes with rearlessness, fearlessness. Very good. They focused on God until they experienced fearlessness. But this time, in verses 28 through 31, we're going to see that the people of God were focused on God until they experienced deliverance. That's the second experience that we see them having here. And this passage is written for our instruction. These are examples for us. And this focusing on God that we have been talking about as we've worked through these seven or eight verses is not like some vaccines that you can get where you just need one shot and then you are immediately and permanently inoculated against fearlessness or you are immediately and permanently delivered all in that one moment without ever having to go through the effort of exercising faith ever again. It's not like that. And these four verses that we're looking at this morning show us that this faith, this focusing upon God, is not to be a one-time thing. It's to be a lifelong, day-after-day, continual pursuit of God. And we learn from these examples that we're going to see this morning that we need to keep focusing on God until we experience deliverance. Because in each of these cases, there's a different case for each of these four verses. In each case, deliverance was not automatic for them. There was a response required from the people before, that they, before they could experience deliverance. And as we read through those four verses, there's a phrase repeated that tells us what the response was. It was by faith. And we've been describing it lately as focusing on God, focusing on God. And in this passage, we find that if we focus on God, if we keep focusing on God, we will experience deliverance. And this passage shows us that there are four kinds of deliverance that we can expect to experience. So we'll look at those in turn. The first is what we see in verse 28. And it's this, if we keep focusing on God, we will experience deliverance from God's wrath. We see that in verse 28 where it says, By faith he, Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. So the preacher, he shines the spotlight on Moses again. And it's the time of the Exodus. And what do we know about how God forced Pharaoh to get the Israelites out of Egypt. He sent ten plagues upon the nation. And we learned in Sunday school that each of these ten plagues was a demonstration of the power of God over the false gods of Egypt. Each plague directly affected what the false god was supposed to be in control of. And that tenth plague we know well, that tenth plague was the death of the firstborn. And when we go through this passage um, in Exodus, I want you to turn there, Exodus chapter 12, we find that 
this tenth plague was no less a judgment upon idolatry. All of these plagues were judgments upon idolatry, and it was no less the case for this tenth plague. Look at Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12, where God says, For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So we find it explicitly stated there. This tenth plague is a judgment upon idolatry. And that gives us some insight into the situation that the Israelites were in. Because the context of chapter 12 of Exodus is God providing a sacrifice so that these Israelites do not also fall under this plague. Why would they have fallen under this plague? Well, we learn from Scripture that these Israelites were idolaters just like the Egyptians. To show you that, keep your finger in Exodus, but I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. And in this chapter, God is rehearsing to Ezekiel the long, ugly, rebellious past of Israel. And we find in this chapter that their rebellion did not begin in the wilderness. We find that their rebellion actually began in Egypt itself. So Ezekiel 20, look at uh, verse 5, where God says, And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, On the day when I chose Israel, and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob, and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them, saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. Verse 7, I said to them, Cast away, each of you, the detestable things of his eyes, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So what do we see there? Even before the Exodus, God is commanding his people to get rid of what? The idols. They have idols. They have succumbed to the idolatry of Egypt during their long stay there. Verse 8, did they do what God said? No, but they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. And what was God's response to that? Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of where? The wilderness? No, Egypt. This is back in Egypt. God sees their idolatry and he resolves to pour out his wrath on them. Back in Exodus chapter 5, verse 3, you remember Moses coming before Pharaoh and saying, you got to let the people go so that we can go sacrifice to God. And in that verse it says, or else he may fall upon us with pestilence and the sword. They were idolaters. In verse 9, God goes on, he says, But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. So we see that these Israelites deserved to experience the wrath of God, but God promised them that if they 
accepted the sacrifice that he was providing for them, that they would not fall under that judgment. If you're still in Exodus 12, look at what verse 23 says. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to smite you. And what was this sacrifice that God had provided? It was a male lamb, unblemished, one year old. And they were to select this lamb on the 10th of the month, and they were to keep it until the 14th day of the month, at which time they were to slaughter it. And they were to apply this blood to their doorways. And if God saw the, door, the blood applied to them, he would pass over them. This was his promise. He was promising to save them from his own wrath. And what do we find in Hebrews eleven twenty-eight? It says, By faith Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood. He trusted that God would be faithful, faithful to not give them what they deserved. And so he focused on God. He followed the instructions to the letter because he trusted in God. And in focusing on God, he and all the people experienced what? Deliverance from God's wrath. Now, as Christians, with the benefit of hindsight and having the full revelation of God in the word, we understand that this Passover was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Remember what John the Baptist said after he baptized Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 29, when he was saying to his disciples, Hey, look, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because we too, like those Israelites, are idolaters. No, we don't bow down to golden calves, but we bow down to plenty of things in our own hearts. We need to examine ourselves. Every time we get mad because something doesn't go our way, we have that sinful response because we are worshiping the thing that we've been denied and we're mad about it. We were not worshiping God in that moment. Every time we complain, we grumble, we're discontented. It's because we've put our hope on something other than the Lord. I remember in seminary, that this hit home, the idolatry of my own heart, when I finally had a moment of rest where I could read something that I wanted to read. I was always having to read books that the professors were giving me to read. And finally, I had a moment's uh, rest. And then I sat it down on our futon, opened a book. My roommate came in and he asked me for help with something. And instantly, inside of myself, I was irritated because he was taking my rest away from me. And then that moment I realized, oh, I'm not worshiping God now. I'm worshiping my ease, my break, my rest. So we're all idol worshipers. We deserve the wrath of God. But God has provided Jesus, our Passover lamb, that if we would focus on him, put our faith in him, we would experience deliverance from the wrath of God. And what does it mean to focus on Jesus? It means to turn from sin to him. It means to trust in him alone as your Savior and your Lord. And it means to treasure him above all other false idols. 
So if we do that, we will experience deliverance from the wrath of God. So that's the first kind of deliverance. What's the second kind? Verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. Here we see that if we keep focusing on God, we will experience deliverance from our enemies. Deliverance from our enemies. So what do we have going on in this verse? Well, Pharaoh, brought to his knees by all those ten plagues, finally let his people go. They begged them to leave, or else they thought they were all going to die. And so Moses led the Israelites out, and God led them right to the Red Sea. And the Israelites turn around, and all of a sudden they see Pharaoh's army barreling down toward them. Because true to form, Pharaoh changed his mind again. He thought, what am I doing letting these people go? And he wanted them back. And so the Israelites, they panic because here they are, Egyptian army in front of them, Red Sea in back of them. There's nowhere to go. But then God split the sea, put a path of dry ground right down the middle of it. And he told Moses and the Israelites to go, to walk through that path. And Moses trusted that God would bring them safely through. And the Israelites followed the lead of his faith. They focused on God as they walked through that path. Now imagine walking down that path through that Red Sea, and you've got on your right hand a wall of water, and on the left another wall of water, that if they were to crash down upon you, that would be the end of you. You would drown. And at the back of you, there's an Egyptian army coming to get you. And you have to trust that God is going to give you time to get through. And they trusted. And they made it through. And then when the Egyptians tried to go through, God took his hand off the waters and they drowned the entire Egyptian army. So they focused on God until they experienced deliverance from their enemies. And this Hebrew congregation that the preacher was writing this letter to They also had enemies, did they not? Rome was their enemy. Rome had outlawed Christianity. They were facing persecution. And these believers needed to trust God that he could deliver them as he had delivered their forefathers before them. And when we think about our situation as believers today, we realize that we also have enemies that we live in a culture that hates Jesus. Oh, they love the Jesus of their own making. They love that Jesus. But they hate the Jesus of the Bible. And therefore, they hate his people. And we have Satan, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. So this world is swarming with enemies who would like nothing better than to see us gone. And if we take our eyes off of Christ and we start focusing, instead of on him, on our enemies, we are tempted to submit to the demands of our enemies rather than to submit to Christ. So you need to keep focusing on Christ, turning to him, trusting him, treasuring him until God delivers you from your enemies. Now, this deliverance is not always physical safety. 
or emotional comfort. And if you doubt that, all you have to do is read a little further down, verses 35 to 38, when we see that these believers experienced torture, scourgings, mockings. They were chained, imprisoned. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. So what kind of deliverance is the preacher through this history lesson directing our attention to? Well, he's directing our attention to ultimate deliverance. I want you to just take a glance at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Because this is the kind of deliverance that Paul was looking for. Chapter 4, verse 6, we find that Paul is letting Timothy know that his race has been run. That he is soon to depart from this world. He's talking about his death. And the death he's talking about is not a die-in-my-sleep, snugly under the covers of my bed kind of death. He's talking about a bloody, violent, murderous death of a martyr. And yet, what does he say later in verse 18? He says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely to where? His heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the kind of deliverance that we are looking for. We're looking for that better country, remember? We're not looking to be safe here. If God chooses that, praise the Lord, that's fine, but that's not what we're looking for. And so we have to keep focusing on God until he delivers us from our enemies. And that day is coming soon. And when that day comes, we will sing as Moses and the Israelites sang that I read earlier in Exodus 15. We will sing of God, our Redeemer, our Deliverer, how he has rescued us from our enemies. What's the third kind of deliverance that we as believers can expect to experience? Well, we find this in verse 30. The preacher says, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. So the preacher, he fast-forwards about 40 years We know that that first generation of Israelites, they have all died in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They failed to enter the promised land. And so you have this second generation of Israelites led by Moses' successor Joshua. And they are coming into the land. But there's a problem. That land is still filled with what? Ites. Yep, all those ites. Canaanites. Canaanites. And they need to drive them out. And God has promised them that he will enable them to do that. And the first battle that they have to fight is against Jericho. And if you look at the history of this in Joshua chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to read about it, that's where you find it. But when you read that chapter, you find out that the people of Jericho, they had heard about Israel. That even 40 years later, they remembered what God had done in leading the Israelites through the Red Sea and destroying Pharaoh's army. And not only that, but they had uh, two neighboring kings that God had already delivered into the hands of Israel, two kings of the Amorites. And so they were terrified. 
And so they were all holed up in that city. The text in Joshua says that they weren't letting anybody go out and they weren't letting anybody in. They were in a siege mentality. So a Trojan horse strategy was not going to work. But God had a plan. And what was his plan? I think we all know. Joshua and the army and the priests, along with the Ark of the Covenant, for six days they were to march around that city once every day. And the, tr- the priests were to blow trumpets. And then on the seventh day, they were to march around that city seven times, punctuated by the blast of a ram's horn, by the priests blowing the trumpets, and by the whole army raising up a great shout. And then God said, the walls would come tumbling down, like the song. Now, if any modern military general had proposed that as a plan, he would soon find himself medically discharged from the military due to mental insanity. But this was God's plan. And he planned it this way because he wanted his people and his enemies to know who it was that accomplished the victory. It was him. It was not his people by the strength of their arm or by the shrewdness of their planning. It was him alone. So Joshua and the army, they did that. And instead of saying, man, this is stupid. We look like idiots out here walking around this city blowing these trumpets. They didn't do that. They focused on God until God delivered victory into their hands. That's this third experience. It's not deliverance from something. It's delivering the deliverance of something into our hands. And we, as they were, we are also promised ultimate victory. That if we keep focusing on God, we will experience uh, the deliverance of victory into our hands. Uh, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 19, where we see this victory take place. Revelation 19, verse 11. The Apostle John is seeing the future of what is going to happen. He says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He's clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. So who is this? This is Jesus. Verse 14, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Who are these people? Look back up at verse 8, describing the bride of the Lamb. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So verse 14, that's us. So imagine the day is coming when our Lord, seated on a a white horse in heaven, we are all going to assemble behind him on white horses, and we are going to all, led by him, ride down to this earth to confront the enemies of God. Sounds like Lord of the Rings, but this is not fantasy. This is future reality. 
You are going to participate in that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And so how will this victory come about? Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying, To all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed. How were they killed? By all of us swinging swords around? No, killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The sword coming out of his mouth, what is that? His word, that we are going to be seated there on horseback and our king of kings is right up at the front and all he's going to have to do is speak a word and those armies are wiped out. And that day is coming. It doesn't matter how many enemies are around us in this world. We know that if we keep focusing on Christ, we will experience the deliverance of victory into our hands. He will do it. He will do it. So that brings us to the fourth and final experience that we can expect if we persevere in faith in Christ. Verse 31, by faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So what is this? What did Rahab experience By focusing on God, she experienced deliverance from the penalty and the power of sin. Deliverance from the penalty and the power of sin. Now, who's Rahab? If you go back to the early chapters of Joshua, you'll see that that account of Jericho is sandwiched between an extended account of Rahab. Rahab is a harlot, a prostitute, a woman whose life was dominated by sin as she lived in a city of all those ites whose lives were dominated by sin. And we know that Joshua had sent out two spies to scope out the city before they did anything. And Rahab discovered, as word got around, that spies had come out into the midst of them, that these two men who had come to her for lodging were those two spies. And these were men who were going to by the instrumentality of their spying, visit destruction upon her whole city, upon her profession, upon her whole way of life. And what did she do? What did she do? She didn't turn them in. She hid them. Now, why did she do that? Turn to Joshua chapter 2. Starting in verse 8, we see that God had been working in Rahab's heart, as she had heard about the Lord, Yahweh, of heaven and earth. 
Verse 8 picks up, the spies are there. She has brought them to the roof to hide them. Verse 8, now before they, the spies, lay down, she, Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us. Notice she's already believing that God is going to win the victory. He's given you the land. It's yours. And that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God, in heaven above and on earth beneath. We see her confess. We see her words revealing a heart of faith. Verse 12, we find her plea for mercy, salvation. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household. And give me a pledge of truth, and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab, she knew that if she persisted in her life of sin, she was going to be destroyed along with everybody else. So she turns her back on her sin, and she throws her lot in with God and the people of God. And when you come to Joshua chapter 6, we find that God has delivered her from the penalty of sin. He's, He's prevented her from being destroyed. He's delivered her from the power of sin. No longer is she living a life consumed by sin as a prostitute. Now she is one with the people of God, worshiping God. Verse 25 of Joshua 6. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. God had welcomed her into the fold of his people. And not only that, but when you get to the Gospel of Matthew and you read about the genealogy of the Christ, Rahab's name is there. God lavished this woman with grace. He delivered her through her faith in him, the God of heaven and earth. And as believers, we also, the moment we put our faith and trust in Christ, we experience deliverance from the penalty of our sin. We were snatched out of the fires of hell. We were set free from the condemnation of God. But what of the power of sin? Because this life as a Christian fighting sin, it can feel like we're not making any progress whatsoever. It can feel like for every inch of ground we make up in becoming more like Christ, sometimes we feel like we lose a foot and falling back into sin. Sometimes we can't see how we're becoming more like Christ. Well, that's when we need to follow the example of these saints. We need to focus on Christ, to turn to him continually, every day, in repentance, to trust in him every single day as our Lord, our Savior, our Deliverer, who can set us free, to treasure him above all else, filling our mind and our desires with him 
rather than those idols that we constantly accumulate. And the more that we fill our hearts and minds with Christ, looking upon him in his word, praying to him, talking with him, worshiping him, fellowshipping with other believers, the more we fill our eyes with Christ, the weaker and weaker sin's grasp upon our lives becomes. As we focus on him, we experience deliverance from sin's power as well. That's the whole, that's the engine driving sanctification, focusing on Christ. We behold his glory, and as we do so, we are transformed from glory to glory. What the Apostle John said in 1 John chapter 3, he says that we know that when we see Jesus, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed upon him does what? Purifies himself, just as he is pure. So we need to fill our eyes with Christ. And throughout the ages, God's people have experienced God's deliverance. But that deliverance has only ever come through faith in him. And it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that we will experience deliverance from the wrath of God, deliverance from our enemies, deliverance of victory into our hands, and deliverance from sin's penalty and power. And you've noticed in verses 28 to 31 the phrase that is repeated, by faith. That phrase is a refrain throughout this chapter, repeated close to 20 times. And this refrain is a challenge to believers to persevere in faith. Because salvation is by faith alone, and it never stops being by faith alone. Meaning that I cannot believe one day and then stop believing the next and still expect to experience the deliverance of God, to end up in his kingdom. The faith that chapter 11 is putting on display is not the kind of faith that is simply head down, raise your hand, pray a prayer, walk an aisle, and then go on and live the rest of your life however you want to live without ever exercising any faith in Christ again, thinking that that initial response was your ticket to heaven. That is a man-made invention. That is not the faith that the Bible calls us to. That is not the faith that is a gift from God. The faith that God gives us is a faith that perseveres, a faith that repents, a faith that trusts in Christ, a faith that treasures Christ and continues to do so until the day we die and experience ultimate deliverance. That is the kind of faith being held out here. So not only is this faith a challenge to us as believers, but this refrain is an invitation to any and all who are still without Christ, who are still under the wrath of God and headed for the lake of fire. If that's you this morning, you need to know that Jesus alone did what was required to deliver sinners. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. It's all what Jesus has done. He lived the righteous life that you failed and refused to live. So that if you would be found in him, you would be declared righteous by God. He alone paid sin's penalty in full upon the cross. So that if you would be found in him, you would not face that penalty. And he alone rose 
from the dead so that if you would be found in him, you will be raised up with him. And Jesus, he invites you, no, he commands you to come to him. Mark chapter 1, verse 15 says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what he said. He commands it. He commands you to come, to turn from your sin, and to come to him, to trust in him as Lord and Savior. And if you do that, you will experience deliverance from his hand, by his hand. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of these examples that you have held out to us, these examples of faith, persevering faith that so focuses upon you that we begin to experience fearlessness and deliverance, Lord. And when we're not experiencing those things, it's because we've grown lax in our focusing upon you. Lord, make us, make us people who always fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, you are our strength. You are our deliverer. Help us to look to you and not to ourselves as that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.